Hello, and welcome to the Barbarians at the Gate podcast. I'm Jeremiah Jenny, and with me today is my co-host, David Moser. How are you doing, David? Doing fine here in Oklahoma. We're uh, under very solid leadership. Um, I feel very uh, optimistic. We're on the right track. And if you believe that, you've been in China too long. Wow. Well, we're also, <laughs> we're also really, I, you know, there are days when I feel like I have been in China just a little bit, yeah. a little bit too long. Well, I can't wait to get back to, to, to Beijing, not just so that you and I can do a podcast in the same room, but also just jumping from one sort of dysfunction to another can be kind of refreshing, you know. Comparative dysfunction. I yeah, like that. right. And we're really happy today to have with us a very special guest, Gina Tam, who's an assistant professor at Trinity University. You may remember our earlier podcast, Mandarin Mayhem, and we could not speak enough about the, the research that Gina has done on dialects and the history of language in China. And she is a PhD from Stanford University, and her, her research interests lie in the interplay between identity building, state-society relations, and the construction of knowledge. And she explores these uh, through themes, including gender relations, language policy, and food. And she's the author of the recent book, Dialect and Nationalism in China, 1860 to 1960. Uh, how you doing, Gina? I'm doing terrific. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, indeed. Well, we're so happy to have you on the podcast. I'm also such a fan of your book. It's I just think it's a masterful piece of scholarship and a piece of history that's a piece of history that's still very relevant. And I'm still learning from it. So thanks very much for writing it. To me, reading through this book, um, the very sort of compelling core of it for me, the, the, or the, the question, or the underlying subtext of every topic you touch upon is this perennial tension in China between the goal of achieving national unity amidst China's extreme ethnic and lingu linguistic diversity. And this is a big problem throughout their history. You trace the intellectual forces of the late Qing that saw the unified nation state with a common language as the key to Chinese cultural survival. And uh, I just reread the chapter uh, today about the Chinese Communist Party during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, uh, and their almost obsession with the promotion of Putonghua as, as a sort of a linchpin, a shortcut to national unity. Um, so, um, I just wanted, could you talk about this fixation on a unified national tongue, which seems sort of the holy grail for Chinese language planners? What's the historical context for that? And, and uh, what does your uh, research uncover about this? Great question. Um, and you're absolutely right, right? Like that's that's sort of the core of my book is this tension between um, thinking about sort of like um, what national unity means in a country where that has so much diversity, right? Um, and to me, I want I want to sort of take us back when we're thinking about the historical context to the late Qing. Um, and as listeners of your podcast will know, in your previous episode, you talked a little bit about this. And so I'll sort of di dig a little deeper about how in the late Qing, right, we are we're starting to think about like what a Chinese nation is. And to me, there's sort of, there's two um, key characteristics that I think really, really characterize or really are sort of important for this period. The first is that there's this sense of like existential urgency. So at the end of the Qing dynasty, um, there is this sense that, that, like nation building isn't just something that they should do. It's something that is like the key to the very survival um, of of what China is, right? So if they don't become transformed from an empire into a nation state into China, that like there will be nothing there, right? Um, so there's this existential crisis. To me, this really key moment is in 1895. Um, 
which is when the Qing um, lost a war to Japan, right? The Sino-Japanese War. Um, and they had been losing um, wars to Britain and France and, and other countries for a while then. But I think that was the moment where where sort of everything kind of clicked into place for, for Qing and Chinese elites in that, like, there's a pattern here of losing wars, of foreign imperialism. And if we don't transform into a, a nation state, then we're going to sort of, we're going to die, right? Um, so the second thing to me that's really important here is that there wasn't really a lot of agreement of what a nation state looked like, like what China was, right? And so you mentioned in your earlier episode, which I think is really great, is that they're looking outside their borders for ideas of what a nation state is. Um, and one of those things is is unity, right? Um, is the idea of a unified national language. Um, and they were reading, sort of, they were looking at Japan, who had just passed national language reform. They were looking at France um, and, and Italy and these other countries about language reform. Um, and they, um, and sort of thinking about, and they were also like reading what Europeans wrote about China, um, where they said like, there's no Chinese language that we can sort of grasp onto, like that's a problem, right? Um, but I don't want to imply that these men were just like borrowing from the West either, right? There was a process of invention. There was this idea of sort of taking different things from Western countries, from Japanese history, from their own histories, and reinventing them into imagining a whole lot of different ideas of what the Chinese nation could be. And the reason I think that sort of that creativity, that sense of promise and possibility is so important um, is because there wasn't a lot of agreement, right? So if we bring it back to language, um, there were a lot of people in the late Qing who felt as though unity meant homogeneity, right? Everyone speaks the same language. We standardize the language and we promulgate it and everyone speaks it. And we all have this sense of buy-in, right? Like as you guys mentioned this quote last, like in your, in your earlier podcast, I'll say it again, right? Sun Yat-sen saying that like the Chinese people are a sheet of loose sand and we need to create some sort of social cohesion here. Um, but there were a lot of other sort of ideas of what unity could look like and that China historically has had a lot of different languages, right? They have often been bilingual bilingual, trilingual, like learning different languages and having diversity has has been part of like what China has been and could be part of what the nation is. Um, and so to me, like when I when I think about the historical context here, I think it's one in which there are a lot of ideas and possibilities. Um, and I and I and that is sort of like built into this process of imagining the relationship between language and nation. Just to kind of follow up from that, there's a there's a quote from your book, uh, in which you write, arguments for and rejections of the homogenizing power of standardization, not standardization itself, defined what it meant to be Chinese in the modern period. Could you go? Could you elaborate on that? And what do you what do you mean by by this this idea that it was the homogenizing power of standardization that defined what it meant to be Chinese? Yeah. So I um I'm, I'd love to dig into that. Yeah. Um. So to me, what I'm sort of arguing against here is a narrative that we very frequently presume about language reform and nation building, um, which is that 
state standardizes language, promulgates it to the everyday people, and they suddenly gain national consciousness, right? That that is the sort of like linear history of how nationalism is formed. Um, and the sort of like the, the, the key work here, which is, which is still a phenomenal read, um, is, is John DeFrancis' 1951 Nationalism and Language Reform in China, which has such great detail, but does presume this, right? It, that's the story it tells. Um, and another example is um, like the one that sort of go to in, in, a, in a global comparative sense is uh, Eugene Weber's Peasants into Frenchmen, right? Which is that we, we standardize French, we teach people French, and then they go from being peasants into being sort of citizens. Um, and like, that's one story that I think we can tell. But to me, that's only part of the story. Um, and to me, there are also these like other people who are arguing against that project, both before it happens and after it happens, in particular after it happens, right? So we pick a national language, or we create a national language. Um, and then you have people saying like, is this really how we're going to represent the nation linguistically? Um, is this is this really sort of what it means to be Chinese is to speak this 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 created national language? Um, and they're doing that out of a sense of national identity. Like they are imagining what it means to be a part of a nation in a way that's very different from these forces that are attempting to sort of enforce homogenization. Um, so to me, and to me, this is very relevant to today, that when we imagine what it means to be Chinese, it's not sort of a, like a laundry list of characteristics, like speak Putonghua, and, um, you know, eat rice and uh, like a variety of other, be Confucian, all of this like laundry list of essentialized characters. That, that's not really what, what national identity is. It's this push and pull between a whole host of different ways of what it means to be um, Chinese um, and not just diversity, but also sort of like a tension between those who really do want to enforce homogenization and those who do, who are really trying to push against that. And that's what my book tries to trace. Yeah, that's great. You, you saying that reminds me of a, a great quote that I actually wrote down. This is such a wonderful sentence. Uh, it's it's sort of related to what you just said that you're talking about the uh, the people who are um, uh, using you trying to assert the uh, interesting uh, historical uh, the, his, the historical interest of of Fang Yan and to assert their own Fang Yan, right? That your sentence is: these people do not wish to carve out an alternative to Chineseness; they are expressing rather alternative Chinesenesses. <laughs> I thought this is a wonderful, <laughs> really academic yes, sentence. It's my favorite <laughs> sentence in the book because because oh, that's well, exactly you. what you're doing. So you are a great explainer, and uh, you do a great a job explaining in the book in the book what which I explained in my book this process by which the Republican area era language planners eventually decided against using this artificial hybrid language that developed that was sort of like trying to teach Klingon to a whole nation uh, of people. And, uh, but, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great metaphor. I love it. <laughs> but in favor of just using the, the Beijing dialect as the, as the standard phonetic standard anyway. Uh, and of course this decision was based on, I, it's a shame we can't go into that, but with the interested podcast listeners can go back to the resource material and look and see what that's all about. Cause it's very, very interesting. But this decision was all obviously based on this, the pragmatic advantage of, of basing the standard on an actual living language. Um, but once this decision was made, did it also 
was that the death knell of the uh, the tolerance for other you know feng yan because it seemed to make the perception that the, the northern mandarin at least and the beijing dialect in particular was the real chinese language and everything else was a kind of a ersatz or substandard version right yeah so i I'll, I'll answer that question and sort of go into the kind of like sadder narrative thread and then i'll end with a little bit of like more of a hopeful thread here um so so as you point out, right, in this, the first iteration of these first, like, wild experimentation and what language and, like, national language could be was this invented thing. And the reason to me that there was this, this um, like, there was such an emphasis on, on creating something new was because these these language reformers were trying to imagine, right, like how you could represent the nation through language. And that thinking, right, that our, our language has to represent our people, including these people down in Guangdong and Fujian who, who speak something that is not mutually intelligible with what they speak in Beijing and doesn't really have a lot of love for Beijing, right? Um, and so... Um, and so once they sort of abandon that, the idea that a national language has to be more than just another Fangyan, that doesn't go away, right? They, and so what ends up happening then is that there's this process of explaining, right, or like legitimizing the language of Beijing um, in a way that makes it more than just a than, than just another Fangyan, right? So the, the, the rhetoric from the Communist Party, for instance, is that it is the common language of the Han people. Um, which is sort of an interesting kind of like turn of phrase, right? They don't actually come out and say that like, this is the Chinese language and all Fangyan are subsidiaries of it. They don't have to, right? It's all just kind of assumed um, in the way that it's framed of like, this is the common language of the Han people, whereas the, um, as Fangyan or Fangyan, right? They're local Fangyan. Um, so sometimes it's done through sort of selling it that way, right? Um, there's also sometimes just selling it as like, learning Mandarin is like the job, right? It's just something you got to do. It's practical, right? So I, I interviewed um, a lot of um, dialectologists from who, who did uh, a, a Fangyan survey in the 1950s for the state. Um, and they, I asked them about this and they're like, well, we can't not have a common language. Like, how are we going to talk to each other? Right. And that, and these were men who had devoted their lives to studying their local Fangyan. Right. And so there's, there's a sense of that, right. Like just, just learn it. It's just something you got to do. Right. Um, and then there's sometimes this is done through subtext. So one of the things that I, I sort of, trace with with probably like too much technicality but um in my book is the process by which like the the they call it goyin so the phonology of the national language becomes the like sort of like standard by which other fangyan are studied right so what they'll do is they'll have like Basically, the way that dialectology develops in the 40s and 50s is that they'll have a list of characters and they'll say, you know, pronounce these characters according to your Fangyan. And then they'll record the pronunciations and then create sort of like a phonological system of those um, of those of those of each character. Right. And then and then sort of summarize it that way. And what dialectologists start doing is they start saying, like, for reference. Right. Here is also like 
the phonology of the national language, right? To juxtapose against it. And so they don't have to come out and say like, this is the language and these other things are branches, but it's implied, right? Like it has this sort of, it has it has that subtle effect of raising the national language and the, na- the phonology of the national language to something more than just another fangyan, right? They're not comparing it all to like the yue, the phonology of the yue fangyan, right? They're, they're pre- and so that is some of the sort of like, I think like work of sort of like discourse and rhetoric that helps to to legitimize um, the the national language as the as as something more than just another fangyan. But the idea that it's just Beijing fangyan like that doesn't go away, right? Like there are people who push against the national language, including for a while before 1949, a lot of like um, like thinkers and intellectuals in the communist movement, right? Like they're arguing that this is not necessarily the language of the people. Um, And so there's this whole movement to have, say, like theater and art and poetry and folk songs to maintain like an like to maintain the importance of fangyan because all of these things are sort of like authentically what the people speak um right and then even if we sort of take it to today right there's a lot of arguments that like um other fangyan are older they're more um they're more authentic they're more historically significant um and all of these kinds of of reasons for why um, as you put it, like I put it in my book, right, that they're more Chinese, they're more representative of what it means to be Chinese than the national language. And so the like that that sort of narrative, um, let's put it this way, the narrative that like only the national language can represent Chineseness, that's there, but it is not the only narrative. And I think that that is sort of one of the consistent tensions that I trace in my book. But this idea, I mean, you know, this idea of Beijing being this uh the privileged form of Putonghua, as it were. Yeah. And even what Putonghua is. I When we did our earlier podcast, I started off getting the whole idea of Putonghua wrong. <laughs> David then corrected me. Yeah. <laughs> and then I continued to get it wrong for the rest of the episode. Part of this, I think, is maybe I've internalized some of the conversations I've had with my neighbors here in Beijing who are, you know, by and large, of the opinion that Beijingers are, you know, they are the perfect speakers of Putonghua. Right. But I, I'm wondering, what's my elevator pitch? If someone, if I'm trying to ex- understand this, or even better, if I'm trying to explain it to somebody who asks me, you know, what is the, what do we really mean when we say Putonghua, and why is this not just simply a synonym for Mandarin? Uh, what, what, what would you say to, what would you say to that? That's a really great question. Um, so one of the things that I, I constantly ask my students to do when I when I think about this kind of question is to ask them to um, like imagine what the definition of a word means at different time periods, right? And so Mandarin, I think as you explained really well, is this term that refers to a whole lot of different things. And 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 grabbing onto it is really, really slippery, right? Like it's is is Mandarin, is it the language of officials? Is it a Fangyan group or is it sort of the, the national language of, of China, right? Um, the other thing that I would sort of point to, I don't know if this is sort of an elevator pitch, but the other thing that I would point to is that um, 
there is there's something really profound about how different words become translated into other words. So one of the sort of main point of my book is how the term fangyan, which has been around, right, like as a term, um, and it's even the title of a book from like 2000 years ago, um, and how that has has that term at some point becomes paired with the English word dialect. Um, and so I, I think you 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 both went into this in, in beautiful detail in, in your earlier episode. Um, but the point at which that pairing happens, like that's a that's a that's a a moment of creation, right? And that it has certain effects. That when Fangyan becomes translated as dialect, that that imbues the term Fangyan with particular meaning, and it imbues the term dialect with particular meaning. Um, and that that and that is sort of really important for understanding sociocultural change. Um, so when we think about how Mandarin becomes paired with Putonghua. Um, that that is tying the term Putonghua to a history that goes back much earlier than the term Putonghua, right? So the term Putonghua actually like used to mean like it was it was used by um, particular sort of like communist intellectuals to mean that like the language that everyday people speak, um, and they and they 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 referred to this this like. You know, when you have somebody from Fujian and someone from Guangdong and they end up sort of in the same kind of market that they figure out a way to communicate with one another. Right. You have these kinds of like emerging people's languages because people find a way to communicate. Right. Um, And then it suddenly becomes tied to Goyu. Right. Like it just transforms into something else. And by translating that into the English word Mandarin, we are tying it to a long history of first imagining the language of officials, right, as a common language, and tying it to a long history of English speakers talking about what the Chinese language actually is, right? And so that's not to say that this is translation is correct or incorrect. It's saying that that is a process of creation and that that has the effect of obscuring the, the, the long, messy, really fascinating history that's a lot more interesting than just they picked Beijing Mandarin and then it just Beijing language became the national language. It obscures this whole complicated, messy history and makes it seem linear. It makes it seem teleological. Um, so that's not really an elevator pitch. <laughs> but I but I think that that is that is to get at how like the fact that these terms are messy is is what gets at the fact that this process was messy and it was not just a simple process of like picking 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 a a language to serve as the national language and i think that messiness is 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 actually the really important part i, yeah. I, I agree i don't think there's an easy way to explain this and and you did a, a wonderful job there and i think part of that is just realizing that there is a complexity here that one-to-one associations between either dialect and fangyan or mandarin and putonghua don't always capture yeah. and i i think that's a that's a challenge both inside china it's also a challenge for those of us outside china trying to understand uh the chinese language and its place here you know i'll, I'll tell you a funny story when i was living in um guangdong um and doing my my um archival research there i, w- I went to a lecture um, by a professor of, of, of Chinese linguistics at, um, at Sun Yat-sen University. And he read out the definition of Putonghua, right? Like, so 
uh, Beijing pronunciation is standard pronunciation, um, Northern Fangyan as base Fangyan, and like modern vernacular literature as like basic sentence structure, um, something like that. I can't remember the exact phrasing. But and then he asked the audience of students, right, like college students in China or in in Guangdong, how many of you speak this? Um, and nobody raised their hands. They all just kind of giggled about the fact that like they don't feel like they speak the standard thing that exists. Um, and I think that I found that just sort of really telling, right, that there is this ideal of what this language is. Um, and then there's just what people can use to communicate. Right. Um, and and that's, to me, another sort of way to get at the complexity here um, when we in sort of other countries and thinking about the Chinese language just stick as like Chinese people speak Mandarin. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, uh, I think three or four years ago, I was in Beijing listening to the radio and uh, well, there was a whole campaign for a few days or weeks, I don't know, about uh, trying to encourage uh, Chinese people in the capital to to learn some Beijing Hua, the Beijing dialect. Yeah. And, I, and, I th and I thought, oh, yeah. my God, what have we got into here? And, and, there was, and they had some famous, uh, you know, TV personalities and Xiangsheng performers who were saying, you know, you know, come on, kids, go ask your grandma and learn, you know, some, some Beijing Hua. And I was thinking, you're so, you're, yeah. your goal is to, keep, is to sort of erase that stuff from the kids' minds. And here, you, here we are trying to re-resurrect right. Beijing Hua, which is supposed to be the basis of the uh, Putong Hua. I mean, which is, which is so fascinating to me. Um, and actually, I, I, one of the pictures I, I took myself in my book um, was of a similar sort of campaign of like, it was like, learn Beijing Fangyan, and it had like a slang right. word, and then it had a picture associated with it. It was in the subway station. Yes, there was, it was in the subways. That's, that's correct. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and, and to me, it's sort of brilliant, right? Because on the one hand, they, they like, they 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 want to sort of like have this this living language, which in itself is yeah. a really slippery concept. Right. Like, what does it mean to yeah. be a living language, right? Um, but on the other hand, they want it to elevate it above just mm -hmm. another Fangyan. And so by saying, well, there's this thing called Beijing Fangyan that's different than Putonghua, um, is a really sneaky way of legitimizing that narrative. Um, and one of the sort of like, I guess you could say lines of propaganda that you get um, a lot from um from uh just sort of like ccp rhetoric in the in especially in the 50s and 60s is that it's not just beijing fangyan right it absorbs the best of all of the other right. fangyan right <laughs> so it's this it, it it it's 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 um it takes what is good from other fangyan and then it leaves the and leaves what's bad about other fangyan behind um which to me is just it's a fascinating way to conceive of what this language is um and whether or not that's true to me anyway because i'm i'm not going to pretend to be sort of a linguist here and pick apart what vocabulary actually made that jump right um but for me even having that sort of line of thinking that discourse is really powerful um and shows how the the state and and other forces that want to see sort of more homogenization have tried to make the case for Putonghua being more than mm -hmm. just Beijing Fangyan. Oh, so fascinating. We're running out of time here. <laughs> Let me get, <laughs> let's get to a few. I want to get to a question that I'm asked a lot when I give talks and um, see what you have to say about it. Uh, and it's on the it's about the future of all these different Fangyan. Uh, so pe people ask me, you know, well, what is the future of all of these uh, local languages? Are they all going to slowly die out? Does the government want them to die out? Uh, is it possible to make to that they will just atrophy? What's your projection uh, for the future? 
That's such a great question. And I have to admit, I'm going to be a little bit cagey about it, Um, but I'll defend that. So (laughs) I'll go ahead and defend why. The projection that you put forward, it makes a lot of sense. Um, It is it is the I mean, given the trajectory on now and also this is sort of the presumption that um, linguists in China today more or less presume, right? So when, when I when I talk to them about what they think of the future of Fengyan, that's sort of what they think. Um, and in fact, there's this whole project out of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences to preserve Fengyan because mm-hmm. they are afraid of this happening, right? That like urbanization um, is going to essentially allow the preservation of those with the kind of infrastructure, whether it's pedagogical infrastructure, um, like news media um, script, right? So Cantonese can like is actually written down pretty frequently. Um, you can learn Cantonese if you go to, um, um, if you like certain schools will teach Cantonese, Shanghainese right. and Taiwanese and such. Um, but one of the things that I feel like I've been really humbled by, in particular in the last few years as a historian, is how much all of the things that I think will happen don't happen, and I am terrible. Like I'm just bad <laughs> at predicting the future. And I feel, <laughs> and I feel like um, the last few years, both being a China scholar um, and also being an American, has made a fool out of out of me trying to predict anything. Um, and so, to me, I, I I do a lot of thinking about what historians really have to say about the future because we're as a discipline, we're very hesitant to make predictions, right? Um, because we we really do believe that the 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 past is is unique and and contingent, right? That that no two things ever happen the same, right? Um, that we'll never have another Nazi Germany again because we already had a Nazi Germany, and like there's there's never going to be we're never gonna the past is never gonna repeat itself, basically. Um, but what I do think the past can teach us is sort of what drives change in the past and where can we see that driving change in the future? Um, and to me, what I think my book shows is that what what makes languages important um, is a sense of connection that people have mm-hmm. to them, right? Um, and so I I see sort of the future you've you've played out, but I could also see where like there's this random rarely spoken Fangyan that somehow gets a viral TikTok video, um, which may seem less likely now, now that that's banned, or suddenly has like a really famous right. rap artist, right? Um, and that there's there's just something that happens that we can't even predict that will make people feel this close of affiliation to that Fangyan. Like, I love that sort of Chengdu Fangyan or Sichuan Fangyan um, has, be- has has had this sort of like beautiful renaissance in the in the Chinese rap community, right? Um, and that's one of the things that I, I go into in my book. And so to me, in thinking about what the future will hold, I don't really know what it will look like, but I do believe that whatever will happen, we have to take into account that that language is is who we are, right? It is it is 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 deeply tied to our sense of of identity and 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 self. And so anything that uh, any sort of changes that will happen in the future, I think, will be contingent upon similar changes um, within sort of our sense of collective selves, our sense of collective identity. Um, so that's my cagey answer as a historian who sidesteps <laughs> predicting the future. <laughs> You're a historian. Historian, you can only predict the past. That's true. And even that's a little bit dicey, let's be honest. <laughs> Maybe we could talk for a moment about the present. Sure. Because we started, you know, our beginning today, we talked about how language reform is a crucial part of building a kind of national unity. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, not a few miles from where I'm sitting here, we have the uh, the Liang Hui, the National People's Congress, yeah. who 
is set to take up, you know, bills that relate directly to parts of the country that they feel lack a certain sense of national unity. Yeah. And certainly one of the issues there is a link is a linguistic and cultural issue. Yeah. This this uh, this conflict between a, a Cantonese regional culture as defined a lot by Hong Kong. Yeah. And, you know, it's a larger national project. And then without going, I mean, this is obviously a much bigger conversation, but maybe just looking specifically at the the language aspect and the cultural aspect, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you think this is going to, how do you think language and culture is going to be affected? Maybe not going forward because we don't want to make predictions, but perhaps at present with the changing reality. You know, um, sort of thinking about Hong Kong, um, one of my favorite examples that I bring up um, when it comes to this, is there was this dystopian film that was filmed in in 2015, um, and um, it's sort of a series of vignettes called Ten Years, um, and it it sort of looks at a uh, dystopian future in Hong Kong with much more um, CCP control in the city, right? Um, and for reasons that that seem you know sort of obvious now, given what's happening in Hong Kong, um, within the last year and the last few years, really, this, this film has, 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 has become sort of a really important, like cultural, like, like, like thing that people look to, um, for, for, for expressing their, their very deep fears about, um, the sort of loss of autonomy in Hong Kong. And, I mean, this this film like has sort of like false flag operations and 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 people being thrown in jail and self immolation. But one of the shorts is about a cab driver who um, speaks Cantonese, and there's a new national language law where he has to speak Mandarin. And like he in in the span of a sort of very short film, um, he like has trouble ordering drinks. He people won't take his cab because he doesn't speak Mandarin, and even his his wife doesn't. Want want him sort of speaking to their son um, in because he only speaks Cantonese. And so I, to me, having this 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 um, short like vignette in this larger film about what is was supposed to be a dystopia shows just how deeply people understand people in Hong Kong tie sort of their Hong Kong identity to speaking Cantonese. Um, but what I find really fascinating um, in in sort of like the the quote that um, you y'all had brought up a little bit earlier of like thinking about alternative Chinesenesses, I think that in Hong Kong there is sort of a deep sense of like Hong Kong identity that's not really national and not really local and it's something sort of really unique. Um, but there is also a sense in which Hong Kongers see themselves as Chinese as well and want to define Chineseness in a way that is not defined by the Communist Party. Um, and so you'll see arguments for saying that, say, like Cantonese is actually has a longer history than Mandarin does. And so like there was this series of images that were being shared on Facebook about the difference between Hong Kong and China. And one of them is that, say, like Putonghua has a has a hundred year history, whereas Cantonese has a 2000 year history. Um, which linguistically, you know, we could sort of we could argue with this, but that but that rhetoric is really important in that they are laying claim to a broader Chinese history, not just sort of a local Hong Kong identity. Um, and you have sort of pushback about how much um, like sort of like Cantonese means to people as part of their their Chinese identity in the city of Guang, Guangzhou itself, right? Um, there was a big sort of protest. Uh, um, a few years ago, um, I don't know if we'd have sort of people protesting in the park anymore, but um, 
this is not sort of limited to Hong Kong, right? Um, that there are, there is a sense in which there is, whether it's it's subtle or direct pushback against the idea that the only way to linguistically be Chinese is to speak Mandarin. And I think that the party is, is keenly aware of that because they will occasionally sort of bring it up, right, in a way that is is very sort of obvious. You, um, in your earlier podcast, you brought up the, the banning of Fang Yin on, on Douyin videos. Um, and then um, there was this sort of big, big blow up in Hong Kong where a like consultant for Mandarin education um, in Hong Kong had said that Cantonese is not a mother tongue. It's not a muyu, um, which is a strange thing to point to. Like they didn't say yuyan, they didn't say language, they said mother tongue, which is a very sort of emotionally laden language, right? So I think that they understand just how how powerful these alternative Chinese-nesses can be. Um, and that that is, is, as they sort of seek to kind of like gatekeep and enforce the ways that people present themselves as being Chinese, that this becomes a really critical part of it. And I, I wouldn't be surprised, as much as I'm not going to try and predict the future, I wouldn't be surprised if given the trajectory this is on, that this will become sort of, it's a flashpoint now, and it wouldn't surprise me if it was a flashpoint in the future too. As I say that I don't predict the future, but here we go. <laughs> well, thank you, Gina, for your time. It was really a wonderful opportunity to talk to you and learn more about your research. If I can ask, are you working on anything? Know, I know the book just came out, but are you working on anything in the future or, or is there some new direction you're taking your research right now? Oh, so yes, but it's it's still very, very new because as you said, the book just came out. But what I'd love my new project to, to look at is um, in taking this, I, I'm sort of taking these themes of, of, of like enforcing this homogenizing idea of what Chinese-ness is um, and trying to look at sort of the, the development of, of China, look at the history of Chinese-owned and operated restaurants, both in China and around the world. And one of the things that I'm really sort of interested in is sort of disaggregating the presumption that, um, like, first of all, that like Chinese food is this sort of like coherent, unified thing, right? Um, that there is sort of a national cuisine. And also the idea that um, sort of when immigrants in particular Chinese immigrants sort of move to other places that the that what they do is they sort of like either recreate or adapt to local taste the, the sort of cuisine of their, their putative homeland. Um, and I'm really interested by say like in San Antonio, Texas, um, there is a um, there's a, a a like Hong Kong uh, bubble waffle shop um, and a ramen place that are side by side and they're both owned by um, by the same sort of Chinese immigrant um, and so there's this long history of sort of crossing ethnic regional. Um, and sort of local boundaries in in like identity in terms of the sort of cuisine that people um, share, and I and that's sort of where I'm headed with my new project. I don't know where this is going to go, but that's that's sort of the new project as as I conceive of it now. If you can get funding for that, I'd love to be a research assistant and get paid to taste all kinds of Chinese food. Keep me in mind if you if this you know progresses. You know, I had a I had a student researcher with me in um, Hong Kong last summer, and that was exactly how I pitched it. I was like, "Do you want to come to Hong Kong and eat a bunch <laughs> of food for research?" And the student was like, "I'm on board. We had a great time." <laughs>
easiest pitch ever. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you, Gina. I hope you have a, a. I hope you're staying safe there down in Texas. Thank you so much. And I hope we can have you back again on the podcast, David. Always good to see you again. Good to see you. Hope to see you in person. This is really social distancing, man. <laughs> this is like six thousand times the new the norm. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate, and stay safe.